Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today we are joined by Susanna Barkataki, a yoga teacher, Ayurvedic practitioner, and the founder of Ignite Institute for Social Change and Yogic Studies. Susanna trains yoga teachers, studios, nonprofits, and businesses to become leaders in equity, diversity, and yogic values so they can embody thriving yoga leadership with integrity and confidence. So let's just jump right in. I was hoping you could start by telling us a little bit about your background, um, how you came to the U.S., how you started practicing yoga, all of it. Well, that's a big, a big journey. I feel like it, <laughs> it started before I was even born, really, you know, with uh, my mom, who's British, and my father, who's Indian, who's Assamese, from the northeast of India, meeting and falling in love at a time when that just wasn't done, with, when white folks and Indian folks didn't actually get married or um, even have relationships. And they managed to fall in love and eventually find someone who would marry them and despite being told that they would have to adopt children or else they'd have half-breeds they decided to have my brother and I and really from that foundation of forming a union or forming a family and an identity and love despite all these external conditions that were stacked against both them and even my existence. Mm -hmm. So much of my life has been about this process of, well, what does it mean to truly belong? What does it mean to be Mm. uh, present in my world or in my body right here where I am? And so I feel like I was practicing yoga from all the, you know, from the from the beginning, and really doing a lot of of self inquiry, and and the first few years, it was, I would say, like the first two decades of my life, it was really like the hard path, and then the last two decades have been a bit more of the sweet path of that journey, um, in and out. But the first two decades were really difficult, and so we moved from England to the United States because of racially motivated violence against Indian and Pakistani and mixed-race families. And so we really came as basically like refugees fleeing violence um, that could have taken our lives and definitely was already making our lives difficult. And so we moved to Los Angeles area. My parents picked that area because they figured, okay, LA is the most diverse and one of the most, you know, inclusive and welcoming places that that we could possibly pick. And so I grew up in Los Angeles. And unfortunately, where they happened to pick the exact part of LA, which uh, was in the San Fernando Valley and the suburbs, wasn't really inclusive. And so even though we had escaped kind of like the life-threatening violence, my my brother and I grew up with a lot of racially charged, you know, name calling and physical violence um, that wasn't life threatening, but was really, really painful. And, and probably, unfortunately, somewhat normalized. Yes, it was very mm-hmm. normalized. 
Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, what brought me kind of to the United States. And then in growing up, I had so much, as you can imagine, a lot of internalized hatred, a lot of like feeling. I remember there was one of the, the guys on our block who was a little bit older um, who said to me once, you know, no one will ever marry you because you're not blonde and, and white. And oh. yeah, and I just, you know, it was like, I knew enough to physically fight back, but even though I was physically fighting, a lot of those types of things, hearing them over and over and over again, went inside. And so I internalized a lot of like, I'm inferior, I'm not as smart, I'm not as valuable. And so in my teens, late teens, really, in early 20s, when I started to say, wait, this this can't be right, like the system and the way we've set it up, like can't disenfranchise all of these people of color from from belonging and from validity i realized that part of my healing was going to be reclaiming the traditions and the roots that i had felt ashamed of for so long you know or even been made fun of for how did you actually do that well i was really lucky in a way um lucky and unlucky i was in a school in the middle of the san fernando valley that was very multiracial and there were a number of other people so many other people who were experiencing their version of you know what i just described and so we all kind of banded together and we formed this collective at the time, you know, now we wouldn't use this word, um, although we did have some indigenous folks, but we called ourselves tribe of the diasporas because we were people, you know, from Latin America, from, you know, Africa, you know, just all over people from every part of the world you could possibly imagine that had come together and said, we need to support each other, be the family and the support structures that we needed that we don't have and really kind of grow each other up. And so through that community, they asked, you know, we all were like, well, what can we do that will restore a sense of dignity and a sense of um, empowerment to us when we've been told that we're, we're so not valuable? And so the, the answer that we kind of collectively came up with is, well, we need to look back to the origins of us. And so some folks were studying and exploring Ifa, which is an indigenous African and um, like Afro-Caribbean religion. And other folks were going back into their Celtic roots. And I decided, okay, I need to study yoga and Ayurveda. And just undertook like a deep, a deep journey of exploring what up until that point I hadn't even wanted to look at. What a wonderful way to get pushed into doing that, though, that it, you know, the circumstance itself actually started to formalize what you would be end up end up doing now so much later. It's really true. I mean, you're right. I think about that a lot of like, this is really the the work that I was meant to do just through being born into the particular situation and time and place that I was. Absolutely. And so what age was that happening at? Were you in high school? Was it after school? Yes. So I was in high school when I was questioning a lot of the systems, right? Then when I was looking at, wow, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, um, colonization. And I was starting to piece together I basically, it's funny, but I used school as a form of rebellion. So I did really well in school because I I was 
studying the humanities and my family is um, very science oriented. And so I was like, I'm just going to be the best, you know, humanities, philosophy, cultural studies student that I possibly could be. And so I was studying all those systems, but I don't think I really started to connect it into my own life personally until after I went to college and came back and actually was working as a teacher at that high school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, when did you take a, a trip to, you went to England, I imagine, and then you, you took some time in India as well? Yes. So, you know, I went to England a lot, actually, all through my, my childhood. We would go back to England and visit my grandmother and my family there. But we didn't go to India. Um, my family, you know, it's an, it's it's an interesting aspect of colonization, but my, I think my, my, father and my family here was was a little bit nervous about just what that would mean and going back and there was a lot of um, a lot of fear actually and so it took me a couple years of working in that teaching job until I'd saved up enough money to take myself to India and so Mm -hmm. that was in you know my mid-20s and I went there and I bought a one-way ticket and you know I was just prepared to stay there as long as I needed to stay to to really explore and learn what I needed to learn. So you wrote an article called How to Decolonize Your Yoga Practice and it was widely shared on the internet and we will link to it in our show notes for sure. And I believe that's one of the things that really made you a, a leading expert or voice on this issue of cultural appropriation in, in yoga. And you've been really honest in other interviews about your own missteps with this. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey with this particular issue as well? Yeah. So, you know, so much of that that article actually came from my own frustration, right? Like I had, I felt like I had been writing and teaching by that point. I mean, I had been back in the States for almost, almost a decade from when I'd gone to to India. And I'd been teaching yoga and writing and speaking and no one was really listening. Like I wasn't getting any play. I would even write to festivals or write to, to different yoga, yoga publications and they wouldn't, they just weren't interested. And what I had to share. And I thought, this this is exactly the problem that I and all of the teachers who now I know because I've lived and, you know, sat at their feet, like with teachers who just come out of caves and were sharing their wisdom is we don't have a platform because the yoga world, as it's been constructed in the West, is operating by these systems like, you know, a colonial system like white supremacy that dislocate us from having a voice and so that article was born one night I was just feeling so like fed up that I put it out there you know and and wrote from that place of like enough and and I think speaking that truth really resonated with people because they also other other South Asians you know their Indians felt unseen and unwelcome and then also in the wider yoga kind of culture, the mainstream yoga culture that we have in the West, people of color in general feel really unseen, as do anyone else who who embodies any kind of minority or target status, trans, queer, bigger bodied, um, 
differently abled or disabled, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think it just hit that hit that pulse, and the work that I do, you know, really is about and continue to do from that first first article is, well, we need to look at what keeps us separate. We need to look at the problems that exist and not just ignore them and say, because of yoga, we're all one. Because if we don't look at them, then we're denying ourselves a chance of really understanding what causes separation so we can actually get to unity. And we're missing all of the knowledge that yoga is imparting in the first place as well. Right. So since that article was 2015, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. so what, if, what growth have you seen since that article in the last four years? You know, I do. I definitely do. At that point, I was an outlier, a, a kind of a voice that was speaking to, in a vacuum, really, of anyone critiquing or bringing up these issues in the wider yoga world mm-hmm. in a mainstream way. And now, I think these conversations have gone way more mainstream, and people want to have them, and they aren't sure how to practice without appropriating. Um, I think some of the complexity, honestly, is in a power structure that is capitalist and that is, you know, has whiteness as its center, it's really difficult to say how we, how can we actually practice without appropriating. And so there is, there is a lot more willingness to deal with the complexity and to kind of sit in the discomfort and unpack that a little bit. The other thing that I've seen rise up though as well is a movement that uh, is very understandable to me because of the impact of colonization, and that is of Hindu nationalism. And Hindu nationalism really says, and takes things like yoga, and says that it's just Hindu, and is really after creating a Hindu nation state, and is after power. And a lot of what we see today, and and people, interestingly and, and complicatedly, on the forefront of talking about cultural appropriation, to some extent, are using these same conversations for the end of, of state power. So that also is, is a more recent and really wasn't, it was stirring in India, but it wasn't so much known about in, in the wider, you know, U.S. Wider U.S. So let's, let's back up a little bit for our listeners. And can you define for us what is cultural appropriation? Hmm. Yes. So cultural <laughs> appropriation is really taking from a less dominant culture, so or a less powerful a culture that is a target culture, doesn't have um, systemic power, and a dominant culture taking from that target culture, taking the practices, the cultural knowledge, the religious beliefs, the costumes or you know um, art the fashion and then using it in a way that either disregards that source culture or also and also let's say causes harm so for something to be cultural appropriation it needs to involve one a power imbalance right and um, power over the the dominant culture has to have power over and two, 
harm needs to be caused. Well, that harm, I think we can dig into a little bit more and get really precise about that because sometimes harm is disrespect and really not acknowledging or not respecting the the values or the practices of a particular source culture. Like for example, when we have say a deity that's placed inside a bathroom or on the floor, um, like a yoga mat with uh, Lakshmi or Ganesh on the yoga mat. So you're jumping and placing your feet. I even recently saw a parking lot that had the Om symbol in the parking spaces. And it's just like, ah, as a, as, an Indian person, you don't put the sacred, you know, under your feet. You don't put the sacred on the floor to be worn out or in the bathroom. It's just not, it's culturally, traditionally not something you do. And so there is like a harm and a pain cause. It's a pain of disrespect, but it goes deeper than just disrespect. And it goes into actual material harm when someone, say, goes to India who's not Indian and takes a particular, say they, they go and they take um, a particular way of, of teaching that a teacher in India has taught, like a particular sequencing or a particular um, wisdom explanation, and then they come back and they sell that without attributing it to that source and without paying any, you know, money back to that source. And we see that a lot, not some, I mean, with teachings, but also with things like recipes or clothing, journals, those types of things are constantly being taken from the source culture and then, you know, misappropriated and um, shared widely and profited from by other folks who then don't give anything back to the people from whom those those riches came. So how do we, as individual beings, know when something is, if the intent is good, if the intent is to share healing information, or if the intent is not for oneself gain, how, how do we use wonderful teachings then in an appropriate way other than honoring the teachers that it came from? Or do you, do you view that as enough? So that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that I'm moving towards is really the idea of reducing harm. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know that we can fully avoid a cultural appropriation in the world that we're in and in the, the structures that we're in, right? Because it's it's so challenging in a system where there's already been so much taken from within the the culture. And, you know, I'm not even sure that it would be the answer to say, I, I don't think it is the answer to say only Indians should teach yogic teachings, right? I don't think that's, that's the solution personally. So I do think, though, there's a lot that you can do. And, and I'll name a few things. Absolutely giving honor to your teachers and ideally practicing and teaching in a way that we take enough time and ask and be accountable, right, to those teachers of, is this doing harm? Is this helpful? Um, but really letting ourselves marinate in that, that teaching for long enough that we have a personal relationship to it. So what I mean by that is... Um, I couldn't agree with that more, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we learn, say, a mantra, and we're practicing with a mantra for a month, we don't then the next month go out and, like, teach a workshop on 
that mantra and right. it's it's power we really take years right years and years and years to to practice and so really developing that personal relationship but also continually being in conversation with other teachers and so for me that means other teachers of color other south asian teachers um that means my my teachers in india right so i'm constantly in this community of of accountability like hey i'm thinking about doing this you know i asked my main teacher in bihar when i was coming back and and decided okay i'm going to teach yoga teacher trainings because i want to share the depth and the richness and the fullness of yoga that I know is possible. Um, and they said, yes, you should do it. You should do it in this way, um, the way that people there understand because they don't understand our way. You know, it's it's not, mm. um, it's just not part of the culture in the United States to go off and to go to an ashram or to go and spend, you know, years in, in meditative practice. And that's something that I've done and will continue to do. Not um, at this point in my life, I'm a mom of a, of a young child. I don't do it for years at a stretch, but I do it for weeks at a stretch where I, I come out of my life and I go on silent retreat, um, very internal practice in order to deepen and deepen and deepen um, my understanding. And then, too, I don't always share everything that I experience. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the other piece of it is like, well, how can we can we perhaps share by embodying? Do we have to immediately like turn around and then profit off <laughs> something that's given us so much, so much wisdom It's just asking ourselves those questions, right? So, so concretely deepen one's own relationship, um, cite sources, right? Acknowledge the teachers, acknowledge the, the lineage. If we can, give reparations or give um, dana or donation back to the source of the teachings for us. So those teachers who've taught us uplift other teachers from within the tradition. So other South Asian or Indian or um, Desi teachers, I would say, because of the oppression we discussed, we've been displaced. So re committing to to really replacing us in that position of authority alongside the other mainstream leaders in the West and um, honor, do our best to honor the symbols, the iconography and the, you know, the sacred texts that we have learned from. I'm curious what you think about someone like Ram Dass who certainly spent a lot of time in India and certainly if you read any of his works consistently talk about his teacher about Neem Karoli mm-hmm. and you know he affected you know a, 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 a white man you know mm-hmm. in his 40s affected uh, this culture incredibly and I'm very curious as somebody who has Indian background how do, how do you see someone like that how does that fit for you well it's interesting because Ramdas exactly has done a lot of what what I just kind of named which is he refers back to his teacher he was really going as far as my understanding and I don't know him personally and I don't know his path well but I've been exposed to through just through seeing some of his his teachings online and in books mm-hmm. but my understanding is he very much was saying I am coming from this lineage I am sharing this lineage this is not you know my creation this is my teacher and was offering this wisdom that opened people up and invited them into that particular wisdom stream and he 
certainly I'm sure has profited from it. And I don't know how much he did give back or gives money to his, you know, his teachers community in India or, or any of those specifics. So I'd have to research a little bit more. But from the outside, he definitely seems like he's doing some things in a way that is is more honoring and less appropriative. Now, there may be some aspects that, that I'm not aware of that are appropriative. I don't know if he has like particular lines of, of products or, or anything like that. That might be more problematic. But writing and sharing his story and sharing his path and teaching um, all while connecting back to his, his teacher seems to me to make a lot of sense. Because for me, a, a spiritual teaching is a spiritual teaching. Mm. If, of course, in fact, we go, we can agree that, as you said, it's someone is steeped in it. They've ha- they're in a tradition. They're, you know, they've done the practice. It's not being, the house hasn't been flipped after a week of <laughs> right. being in it and sold, sold at a higher commodity. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I think that's where we get, it gets sticky and get in, gets into religion and how someone thinks they can own a part of religion as well. That, that's where I was going to go. Is there's, there seems to be an issue of ownership. And I'd be really curious about your thoughts on that because, and I don't understand how one owns a spiritual practice. And I actually was saying to Amy earlier that as a recovering Catholic, uh, which is <laughs> how I would define myself, part of, part of my struggle is how... Uh, the church has expressed ownership over Jesus's teachings. And so ownership and spirituality feels like a really, really tricky subject. I'd love to have you kind of share your thoughts on that. Yes, I really agree. And actually, that's a lot of what we're seeing with this move to um, encapsulate yoga or yogic traditions as a part of Hinduism only. And it is really concerning because in a way it follows a lot of the same kind of perspective that I might bring, which is we need to honor the roots. We need to look at where this came from. But it says, and it's it's one religion only, and one must either convert or be practicing as a Hindu to partake or share or teach. Uh, and that to me is, is concerning because my understanding of the yogic tradition is it's always been multifaceted it's it's even in its earliest roots was pre-religious you know it was kind of indigenous and earth-based and um, with people connecting to and worshiping things like earth you know prithvi or vayu air um, surya the sun right so we have these things that now how many of us as yogis do and folks listening right we do sun salutations but we may not know that it comes all the way back from these very, very early origins of connecting to the fundamental elements that make life possible. And that for early people, early yogic practitioners, they were they were deeply in reverence and in honor to. So there's no way to own that. You can't own the sun. You can't own the earth, you know, and, <laughs> and you can't own air. These things are are beyond a sense of, of ownership or me or mine. And, and ownership is really counter even to the spirit of what yogic wisdom is inviting us into. And so I think where people sometimes get stuck, and, and I'm glad you brought this up, is when we bring up cultural appropriation, it seems like I or other people are saying, well, 
we own yoga or our culture owns yoga and so you need to do it x y and z way and actually we're not saying that we're just saying um treat it with more respect look at look at all of the richness of this tradition so we don't water it down and dilute it to such an extent that we lose the richness of where it's come from really so it's more about a um an a request for engaging in a respectful way as opposed to an acquisitive way and i think you know, if we hadn't had all these centuries of of colonization and of things like natural resources or wisdom being taken and then exploited, I don't know if we'd be having the same conversation, but because we're in that context. It's sensitive, mm-hmm. There's sensitivity for sure. Now we're gonna take a quick break from our chat with Susanna to give a shout out to our show partners. Shambhala Publications is the proud publisher of our book, Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat, as well as Yoga Mama, the practitioner's guide to prenatal yoga by Linda Sparrow. As a listener of our show, you get 30% off your purchase with code BRAHMACHARYA30 at Shambhala.com. That's B-R-A-H-M-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A-30, all caps on BRAHMACHARYA. Support for Living It is also brought to you by KarmaSoft, simple, user-friendly software designed by yoga studio owners that makes it easy to check in students, easily handle payments, and manage schedules. Both Amy and I use the software at our studios and love that it lets us spend more time with our students instead of doing admin work. And now, back to our conversation with Susanna. So we wanted to have you on our episode um, focusing on brahmacharya, um, which maybe seems like an odd choice because I think a lot of what we're talking about is ahimsa. Um, and we have a reason which we'll explain, but I'd, I'd love to hear how you define brahmacharya. Yes. So originally, my understanding is brahmacharya is really the management of our life force, breath, and sexual energies. And so it's the, the care of the preservation, you know, Brahma, the life force, Charya, the chariot of life. And originally, in the way that my teacher um, in the Shankaracharya tradition taught me, it didn't actually initially mean celibacy, but mm-hmm. under a more restrictive and more kind of codified religious framework that came up with with Vedic Hinduism, you have the under the interpretation of brahmacharya as celibacy. And so there's both the kind of pre-codified understanding and then the codified understanding Mm -hmm. that we've got living side by side. And so for me, I I take it really seriously. And um, you might not know probably you wouldn't know and and most people listening wouldn't know but when I first started going deep into this practice I considered becoming a like a renunciate Mm -hmm. and renouncing the ways of the world sexual relationships marriage family life um, property in order to go deeper into a spiritual practice and after some time I was practicing in that way Um, this was in my later 20s and I encountered a number of teachers who said, you know, you can, 
this path is a very valid path. Perhaps you might want to come back to it at a different stage in your life, but you also can practice brahmacharya and cultivation of spiritual wisdom in the world and engaged in the world and having a job and having relationships and having property. And it's actually no different um, than the renunciate's path. It's just a different form. And so that was very impactful for me. And I thought, okay, well, I can do either one, like either one is, is accessible, but I really considered what, what I'm going to do as I move out from this more kind of renunciate's path of, of life into living more in the world is take the practice of brahmacharya with me. Um, not celibacy, but the practice of respectful management and um, relationship with my own life force, my breath, my sexual energy, and in a way that where, you know, all energy, all life is sacred. So I'm going to do my best to respect and cherish it. And to do that in relationship with others by really concrete things like honoring and respecting the boundaries that others set, asking for and honoring consent, um, not using any of my power or energies to harm other people or go against their wishes mm -hmm. and to cultivate love and kindness and compassion and joy and inclusion for people was the, the way that I came to understand brahmacharya. What a beautiful explanation. It's fantastic. Yeah. Beautiful. I think about it for me, and I, Kelly and I talk about this. We're, we're both yoga studio owners um, for, for me nearly two decades, for Kelly passing 10 years, and we're in a position of power, and um, it's a very delicate place to be, and I continually try to make sure that I'm not up you know, on a pedestal and that I'm continually... Um, you know, as using my energy as best I can is all of the ways that you're describing. But I also have been thinking more lately, and Kelly and I have been talking about this within our communities, how we can use use our position of power, it, it, actually use it in a positive way instead of being neutral. Very much like you started at the very beginning of our, our conversation is not to just stand back and be neutral, neutral because neutral isn't going to necessarily move us forward and take care of the harm that's existing. Well, and I think that that comes back to the second part of this sutra, which is asking us to act with the divine in mind, right? And to use our power for and our energy for the greater good, which is why we wanted to have you on for this episode. So so let's let's talk about that. What can we do for the greater good? What what can teachers do to educate themselves? What can studio owners do so we can be allies? What what can we do for our students as well to kind of help them? Yes, I love this question. And um, I mean, I'll share a few things, but then I actually would love to ask both of you as studio owners what you've done or what you're thinking about doing. So one of the things that really matters to me and that I've seen impact communities greatly is when studios and yoga teachers start teaching the fuller expanse of what yoga is. So first of all, to do that, to teach that, as we've talked about, you have to be practicing it and you have to be developing your own deep relationship to it. And that's not something that can necessarily happen overnight. Although sometimes when we take on like 
uh, practice of brahmacharya, for example, or any of the other yamas or niyamas, it can go very deep very quickly. And really, they have the potential to change our lives and to change the lives of our students. And so if you're teaching asana or if you're running a studio, I would say bringing in elements that share some of these other aspects, the philosophical aspects, the ethical aspects of what a full yoga practice can embody. Tapas, mantra, mudra, you know, different things that have um, been these gifts, these rich gifts to us from the tradition that can serve us so powerfully that just it's like they get left out and uh, ignored. And so people come in and they think yoga is just about getting like, I don't know, I heard this phrase the other day, I'd never heard it before, but like a yoga butt. I don't even know what a yoga butt is, but oh I know God. that that's not what this is about, right? And um, and so because of, right, but because of the market and the demands of what people are coming for, how people see fitness, I think sometimes we can give in to the demands of the population and make something more of a commodity or um, more fit the, the perception of what people think they need. And I'm all for skillful means, right? And getting people in the door, but then once they're there, give them, give them what it is that, that we know yoga can be. I would love to hear from you about some of the best practices you've seen about how to offer that fuller experience. Because so many people do come to the mat for the physical. I certainly did in the beginning. And now as a teacher, I look at that as an opportunity, um, you know, to expand students' idea of what the practice can be. So I'd love to hear from you about some specific ways teachers can do that, share that fuller experience. Yes, that's great. I, I think about that a lot. And like you, you know, when I came back and started teaching yoga teacher trainings, and even just te- before I was teaching teacher training, just teaching in a, a yoga asana class, I would think about theming. So take a particular theme and then run that theme through a class. And so for the teachers listening or people who are thinking about, okay, you know, I have a week of teaching yoga, what am I going to do next week, is perhaps you're picking a yama or a niyama and running that through for the week. Or even a theme like um, fire or focus or mindfulness, right? Or even meditation. And then practicing with that particular topic or teaching yourself and then bringing that out in class. Not as like I am the expert and here I'm going to teach you all about, you know, samadhi or bliss, right? Uh, But I'm, you could share it as with your class, like I'm exploring this and what it means. And I ask you or to inquire along with me this week as you know or today as we practice and then bring it through that physical class because so many yoga teachers really are still teaching physical asana mainly and so we can just plant those seeds of going deeper and even saying you know at the beginning of class um, I honor my teachers including and then listing teachers potentially um, other yoga practitioners and the rich breadth of this practice which embodies so much you know a plan or or a structure for how to live our lives and then if you're curious we can talk more after class so just dropping little seeds like and if we're doing that already can we do more (laughs) yeah 
I think we can always do more. <laughs> I mean, and always do more. And then offering workshops, right, that go deeper. So just to recap, we can offer a fuller experience. We can be truly welcoming in terms of our language. I would think that that also would mean like who is represented physically on our websites and in photos and things like that. Um, I think price, Amy kind of mentioned that in terms of accessibility. What are some other specific things studios can do or teachers can do? And then what are some resources you could point folks to who maybe want to learn more about what they can be doing? Yes. So definitely pricing, going into communities, working with partners who are already out there doing great work in the communities that you're in. Um, Those are all ways to do, to become a little bit more accessible as well as, you know, as we said before, deepening our own practice and sharing the richness of that. And I think another big one is really kind of doing a a self-audit, and that might be checking ourselves as we're teaching, but we can get very accustomed to teaching in a certain way and to using certain cues that may invoke hierarchy or like a sense of the fullest extension of the pose, or if you want more. And so instead, really looking at and training ourselves to cue or describe as fully as possible poses without hierarchy, with options. And there's some really great folks doing this kind of work. A lot of it is happening in the accessible yoga community, and um, so looking up accessible yoga. And then also a lot of, in terms of you know race and inclusivity, there is working with and looking at the teachings of coaches and teachers who are who are really trying to help us understand how these things impact us and how they they kind of pervade across our language and then go into into creating a normative space. And so if we want to create a truly inclusive space, we kind of have to reprogram our own understanding first and then start to share that out in the world. And so one of the resources, I mean, I, I like you with the Yoga Sutras book, there really isn't a great resource that I know out there right now that both looks at how we can honor the roots of the practice and how we can make it accessible and welcoming for all. And so I'm in the middle of writing a workbook that goes into this. And so that should be available by the time this comes out um, for folks to explore and to learn from. And then in it, there'll be a list of a number of resources of other people to to learn from. But there's a lot, you know, I feel like we're kind of on the, the cusp of this real revolution change yeah, a real mm-hmm, revolution sure. of yoga in in the west and it's it's so time it needs to be disrupted <laughs> it is so time do you get overwhelmed by all of the work that you're doing you know speaking of brahmacharya you know how do you how do you keep yourself even and use your energy the right way and not feel like there's always more to do or or do you feel like there's always more you to know do? <laughs> It does sometimes feel really overwhelming, and especially when I'm writing about things that are so personal and that have had a real impact on me or my family or, you know, my ancestors. It's from both sides, right? It's like, um, because for those folks who, and I have ancestors who are white as well, it's like, wow, like, we really felt so un 
settled or so not at home that we had to go and take from other people in order to feel like we were enough. Like that's painful. And so I do do a lot of self-practice. And, you know, like I mentioned, I take time for retreat. I do take time for meditation and for personal practice and contemplation. I have a, you know, structure that I was taught by my teacher to do in the morning and in the evening of contemplation of sacred texts, of personal practice. Um, I also write, for me, writing, journaling can, you know, and, and also writing can be very healing. And so I utilize those practices as a support. And then sometimes I just take breaks, play, play with my six-year-old, you know. We, right now we're really into playing like imaginary games and, um, you know, going hiking, getting into nature. So I do, I, I do feel like the path has been given given to us for a reason, and it's within the path that I can find my healing. And also, um, you know, there's there's time for just like releasing releasing the the weight of it all because it's not about any one of us, right? Like no matter what, we're all in this together, and we're shaping and shifting the way that the future of yoga is going to go together. And so it can't rest on anyone's shoulders. It's, it's everyone's job. And that's really inspiring. And, um, you know, makes me feel really connected, actually, to other people that are out there that care so much about this tradition. And it makes me feel hopeful. And so in those moments where I'm like, ah, this is too much, I just remember, there's so many other people out there that love and care for this rich tradition. And so kind of like relying on, on them a little bit relying on that, that collective. And there's movement, we see movement. Susanna, The subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat, which is very clearly what we've been been talking about here. And so we've been asking all of our guests this question um, because we want to be able to offer listeners and readers really specific, tangible practices and ways that they they can do that. They can live their practice off the mat. So what off-the-mat practice helps you use your energy and power for the greater good? So there's many, but I'm going to answer that with one connected to brahmacharya. So really checking in with myself before I do something and seeing where is my energy, does this thing that I'm about to do, like say a friend calls me and invites me to go to a social event or a party. Is this thing something that my my life force, my energy, you know, does it feel sustaining? Does it feel nourishing? Does it feel like that's actually what I want to be doing? And then if the answer is no, which it sometimes is, because I'm kind of an introverted extrovert. I love people, but I really like my my solitary space. So in this example, often with a social thing, it's like, no, and if there's going to be alcohol there for me, definitely not, because that can be challenging. I'm sober, intentionally sober. And so, um, so then, how can I honor the connection, right? The energy of this connection with this friend that just called me, that invited me to go to this party, And I don't want to go to that party, but I do love them and care for them. So I'll say, you know, I love you. And I that doesn't feel like a space that I want to be, but I'd love to have tea with you later in the week or um, that morning. And then you can go and have fun. And I'm going to stay home with my book and, you know, journal and, and just hang out in my space. And so really taking the time to 
stop to practice this vidyaya, this, this self-reflection, the introspection of what does my life force really call for itself to be its highest self right now? And then how can I honor other people's? Um, so I think that practice has really changed a lot because so many of us, it's like we say yes, I used to say yes and go out and do the, the things that I didn't really want to do or where I was spreading my energy all around doing things with other people because I loved them and valued them, but it really was detrimental to me. And so just encouraging people to take that pause and to really check in with their own energy. Now, of course, um, another aspect of brahmacharya is honoring boundaries, right? So that's a way of setting my own boundaries, but also honoring the boundaries of others. And so the biggest way that I think we can really take our, our yoga off the mat is by living the ethical principles like you've written about, the yamas and niyamas, living those to the best of our ability. and you know, at very, very least, trying to do no harm, to respect the boundaries of others and care for others as we build our own, you know, compassion for ourselves and kindness in inside, but also outside. That's amazing. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. We have loved having you on and really appreciate your, all the work that you're doing. Yes, and all your work. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Susanna and where she's teaching, visit SusannaBarkataki.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-N-A-B-A-R-K-A-T-A. Ki.com. You can find links to this as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. For those of you interested in deepening your practice while also enjoying the sun and sea, Amy is leading her annual retreat in Mexico, December 1st through the 8th. Visit tantramadison.com for more info. For those of you who can't escape to the beach, I'm leading an online course on the sutras this fall. Send me an email at kelly at livingitpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, listeners get 30% off Yoga Mama by Lindo Sparrow and Living the Sutras by us at Chimbala with the code Brahmacharya. Thank you for tuning in. We're so excited to keep doing this. Please share this with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly Donardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes, write a review. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening.